Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the ANU and Alan Gingell from the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. Well, we're a bit tired today because we've just done a very interesting hour-long episode on a very important subject, climate change, with a guest, and we're going to release that episode as quickly as possible. But it's Tuesday the 1st of December today, and the news on China and the bilateral relationship with Australia has been overwhelming over the past couple of weeks. And so given we're on the line, we'd sort of set ourselves to chat this afternoon. We thought we'd try another emergency type episode with very little preparation other than reading the news every day and see how it goes to offer our quick reactions as to what's been happening. Just to recap our listeners as to where the state of play as we speak, it's four in the afternoon on the 1st of December. Yeah, when we last recorded a podcast a few weeks ago, the PM was on his way to Japan where he would actually sign a defence deal with Prime Minister Suga on reciprocal access. And then the following day, after we released the podcast on the 17th of November, an embassy official in Canberra provided journalists with a list of 14 issues, points, grievances, you might call them. The idea being that if Australia reversed its policy on some or all of these issues, that might improve the bilateral relationship. And Prime Minister Morrison's response was that no nation would set Australian policy other than Australia. That week, basically, both sides traded back and forth, essentially saying the other side needed to be the one to take the first step to right the relationship. Then on the 23rd of November, the Prime Minister gave a speech to a British think tank, which was seen by many as somewhat of an olive branch, noting that Australia had never wanted to contain China economically and did not want to be forced to make binary choices between the US and China. Then a couple of days later, late last week, the Chinese government announced new interim anti-dumping measures on Australian wine, which would triple the price of wine in some instances. And the alleged basis of this was that the wine was being dumped below cost into the Chinese market, which is an accusation that has been vigorously denied across the Australian system. A couple of days after that, the Australian government said that it would bring China to the WTO with regards to the barley tariffs, which were imposed last May. And you might imagine that once the wine process plays out, because these were interim duties for anti-dumping, that we might go to the WTO for the wine issue as well. Then the thing that's been creating the most furor over the past 24 hours, yesterday on the 30th, Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson Zhao Linjian tweeted an image, a doctored fake image of an Australian soldier, apparently cutting the throat of an Afghan child. Now, Prime Minister Morrison publicly responded to the tweet, calling the image repugnant and demanding that it be removed and calling for the Chinese side to apologise, which unsurprisingly, perhaps Chinese officials have refused to do and they have instead doubled down. Now, the image itself is related to a report that was released by the Australian Defence Force about two weeks ago now, I think, recommending that 19 soldiers face police investigation for the murder of 39 Afghan civilians during the course of our deployments in Afghanistan. And 
The Prime Minister has faced criticism domestically for his reaction to the report, especially in the past few days over a question of whether or not a particular award that was given to many soldiers should be rescinded because of the actions of these few soldiers in committing allegedly these horrific acts. So we have a lot to discuss. And so that brings us to my first question, Alan, in which I want to go back about a week ago. Because after those 14 points or those 14 grievances were released by the Chinese embassy to Australian journalists in Canberra, I sent you a message, Alan, and asked whether we should do a quick emergency podcast to discuss that list. And you decided against it. And in the past, you have cautioned me against overreacting to the news of the day or the news of the minute. Like, I want to get on and talk about these things and react in real time. And you say, calm down, Darren, slow things down. Let's see what happens. Can you talk us through your thinking then and perhaps give us an argument today for why we shouldn't be having this podcast even now and really that our listeners should just stop the podcast and and go and do something else more productive with their time? Yeah, no, I think the podcast is worth doing now. The difference is, well, A, you know, to be honest, we'd just done a podcast the day before, as you, as you were saying. Mm. But more particularly, I th- thought we needed to give time for the embassies, you know, 14 points to sort of work through the, the system. It was a very unusual thing for the embassy to do. They sort of hooked up with a couple of journalists here and said, these are the points of difference between Australia and, and China. And to be honest, there's not much that would surprise anyone in them. We've talked about many of these things on the podcast before. So I didn't know how much this was simply the embassy freelancing with public diplomacy and how much was coming from Beijing. I didn't know how the Australian government would react. But I think now we've seen in the intervening time the relationship go further down the gurgler in in a way that I, I wouldn't have thought possible And there have been action and reaction on both sides, which I think do make it worth talking about because I think we are at a very serious and damaging point for both of us. I just want to say one thing about the fake image. Mm. It it, it didn't purport to be and didn't look like a photograph of Australian diggers doing the job. It was much more like the sort of photoshopped images you see on the front pages of the you know Daily Telegraph mm. or The Sun. So it's just, I think mm. it's some of the media reporting has suggested that there'd been a sort of deep effort to pretend that this was real. I'd easily agree that this was a very both clumsy and crude thing for mm. a senior Chinese foreign ministry official to do, but it wasn't mm. that. I wonder if our reaction would be different if it had been like a David Rowe cartoon maybe and it was obviously a caricature drawn in an animated image rather than something that might have purported to be real. No, I don't don't think so. I never thought it was, you know, I looked at it immediately. You could see it wasn't meant to be real. Mm. But the response was that this was Mm. the, you know, spokesman for the Chinese foreign ministry tweeting it out. So this is different even Mm. from the editor of the Global Times or, you know, the usual suspects. So it was important for the Australian government to respond. Mm. What's interesting to me about this past fortnight is that I would characterise the events, as you said, Alan, as an action and a reaction. But the primary actions have all come from the Chinese side, and I'll list them. One, you've got the 14 points or the 14 grievances. Two, you've got the new wine anti-dumping tariffs that have been imposed. And three, you've got 
the promulgation of this image, the tweeting of this of this image. Now, it's not fully true that there's been no action by Australia because you had a speech by Josh Frydenberg, the Treasurer, you had a speech by the Prime Minister to this British think tank, and you also had even a speech and a Q&A session by Francis Adamson at the National Security College mm-hmm. at the ANU this past week as well. But I think the news generation has been action by China and, and, and reaction by Australia. And, and we've almost been playing defense and, and scrambling to respond. How would, I mean, how have we done? Have we been caught flat-footed here or how would you characterize our responses? I th- think I would, I'd give us a pass, Mark. But <laughs> I wasn't asking for a grade, but hey, Kate. No, no, look, what I mean is that I think that the PM's speech in London, which mm. was portrayed to the media as an olive branch wasn't much of one. I mean, last time we were on the podcast, I said that I thought that a breakthrough ought to be a major speech by the PM on what we want out of the China relationship, what we expect of them, how we see it. it. It wasn't that. It was a repetition of existing policy lines. We don't seek to contain China. So this is not a binary relationship. In other words, we want to maintain our economic relationship and be able to do whatever we want on the on the other side of thing. you know, fine, but I didn't interpret it and I doubt it would have been interpreted in Beijing as that. So if that was the point, which, you know, seemingly from the media briefing it was, I don't think that was terrifically, terrifically good. I thought Simon Birmingham, I think, has been easily the best performer in government in responding on all these things. And I think the sort of sober, serious and fact-based responses that he made, particularly on the wine tariffs, have been exactly the right reaction. So, you know, a tick for that. But finally, on the decision by the PM to ask for an apology from the Chinese, I thought that was tactically unwise because we know that the Chinese are highly unlikely to give an apology, but that turns the issue into a trial of strength for whether the Chinese will apologise or not, rather than him saying, we're offended by this, this is a, a completely unworthy thing for the Chinese government to do, it reflects very badly on them, it's not the way in which we expect countries to behave in the world full stop it sort of gave it that other element which i think doesn't help because in the end it is not something that we are likely to see i was chatting with a few friends and and one pointed out to me that the spokesperson Zhao is relatively junior i mean maybe the equivalent of an el2 in the chinese yeah. foreign ministry not even the most senior spokesperson who does the press conferences his boss was the one who came out today to respond. Yeah. I imagine to diplomatic sensibilities, having the prime minister respond to a junior or mid-level official is not a good look. Was that a problem for you? Or? Yeah, no, that was less a problem for me because it was a tweet from a Chinese mm. official. As I said, if it had been mm. the editor of the Global Times, you wouldn't have worried. But mm. I, I note that, I mean, one of the, the news reports I saw last night described him as the second highest ranking official in the Chinese foreign ministry, which is just, yeah, I, I know, but that's the sort of the sort of vague stuff that's going on around all of this. So, yeah, I, th- I, think, we, I think we should have responded because it was an official of the Chinese mm. foreign ministry. And if there was a, yeah, one of our 
colleagues or that we've had uh, on the program had done it on our, on our part, then you would have expected that sort of response mm. from China. Mm. I have to be the political science cynic here and sort of give my take, which is always to think, what's the domestic logic to this? Like if I was a ruthless Machiavelli and what, how would I interpret this? And, and to me, you know, there are two clear logics that stand out. And again, this is to put aside the obvious, you know, wrongdoing by the Chinese side and not condoning what they're doing. And in a principles-based world, you would call this kind of thing out. But we live in a political world. And so what's the political logic? And for me, there are two obvious ones that stand out. One is that the PM might be under some pressure. Again, I, I'm not a, I haven't been paying a lot of attention to this ADF story, but to the extent that he does feel under pressure for not reacting in a way that people want him to react, or from just the general ickiness and, and sadness and, and horror that the Australian community is feeling in learning about mm. what happened, mm. this is a way of changing that story into something else. But secondly, you know, there's a, a possibility that there's just a belief that things aren't going to be patched up with China anytime soon. We've got these recent wine tariffs and this is a way of putting a marker down for the Australian public, really drawing it to everyone's attention because it was going to make news that China has done something Chinese foreign minister official has done something that is really going to be offensive to many Australians. And it's, it helps build, you know, that rally around the flag effect we talk about in political science, build political support for what may be a long campaign of economic disruption. At some point, we'll see jobs being lost and we'll see businesses, you know, go under potentially. And that's when the, the, mm -hmm. the, the pressure would really normally come to bear, you would think, in terms of needing to repair the relationship. And perhaps this is about girding us for those events to come. I mean, I'm the political scientist here, I'm the, I'm, I'm the cynic, Alan, but do you see any possibility, any merit to either of those lines of thinking? I'm a resident of Canberra, Darren, so I think there is <laughs> certainly some potential plausibility in what you've been talking about. There are, there are a couple of other angles to this that interest me. One, mm -hmm. one is the absence from the debate of the National Party in the way in which we've been used to the National Party acting in Australian foreign policy over 70 years. So if you look back at the China relationship, well before we established diplomatic relations, because the you know, McMahon government and the Menzies government were opposed to it, we were selling wheat as, as hard as we could. And that was because of pressure from the country party as it then was. The same with the way in which we've dealt with Iran as well. We've had a, a mission in Iran ever since the revolution, basically because of pressure from the National Party and its constituents. So that, that I think, is a really interesting change in the dynamics of Australian policymaking at the moment. And it's another indication of the way the security establishment is bearing so much more of the weight in decision making. Moving on, when we've evaluated the Australian government's response, you know, and its management of the China relationship on this podcast recently, but going back really since the beginning, a lot of our focus is on on language, on words, on how we frame the issue, beginning with Malcolm Turnbull's unfortunate use of the the, the Australian people have stood up through the years since. And a lot of what we're discussing from these past few weeks has, again, been a question of language and framing rather than concrete action. We do have one piece of concrete action, though, from the past few weeks, which, of course, is the move to begin proceedings to the, go to the WTO. 
an appeal to the rules-based order and a multilateral institution, as you could think about it, in response to at least one dimension of the economic punishments that we've received this year. There has been a discussion, of course, about whether that's the best way forward. Is a legal solution, a legal remedy, the right way to solve a political problem? Should we be building coalitions of like-minded countries for support in a political sense? Ella, I guess what I'm saying here is, what is the path forward for us? You know, should we be appealing to institutions? Should we be building political coalitions? Should we be focusing on the bilateral relationship and trying to get things started there? I mean, it's probably all of the above, but how do you see the relative balance of opportunity and risk here? All of the above, but look, you you wrote an excellent op-ed for the Guardian on this very very subject. So why don't you tell us what you said in that? Well, the the short point is that. The, the legal remedy is it's an important one, I think, to pursue because of how much the rules-based order is central to the, you know, our foreign policy platform. Yeah. So we need to be seen to have try. But in terms of the economic damage, you know, the share prices of Treasury estates went down, plummeted the day of the, the announcement of the, of the tariffs. And by the time the legal process is finished, it could be one year, two years, three years, the damage has already been done to our economic interests. And even if we were to win, if the Chinese don't acknowledge the victory, then the remedy, of course, is that we can impose our own tariffs in response rather than you know, reversing these measures. So you, it doesn't solve the economic problem and it doesn't help solve the political problem either you know you're not resolving things with china nor are you really deterring them if you're looking for that kind of political resolution so i guess that there's no exciting simple answer necessary for the long term i think trajectory of our foreign policy but we're dreaming if we think it's going to help solve anything in the in the short to medium term and that's obviously a time horizon that our economic interests but also i think the government cares about yeah, I, I, I agree with that, Darren. Look, one other point about the economic debate that hasn't really been mentioned much is that the perception here is that the Chinese are damaging our economic interests, whereas our attitude is neutral. But if, you, if you're sitting in Beijing, then the actions Australia has taken on 5G, for example, the actions we've taken to sort of galvanise international responses to Chinese, you know, threats in the area of communications are mm. re really quite central to one of China's main economic mm. ambitions. And it, it was obviously one of, the, one of the points that was mentioned in the 14 articles. So I do think sometimes we are in danger of not fully understanding the way in which China is looking at this. I mean, the, the idea that it's all coercion, China wants to bully us into a mm. position where we, I don't know, leave the ANZUS Treaty or, or mm. simply shut up on international issues. I think that's just too simplistic. I think there's more going on here. And that's why I thought in the end that the decision that the Chinese embassy made to release that list to the journalists was actually quite interesting because it does give you a sense of what, what is causing the problems. Now, there are some things on that list that we're not going to be able to do anything about or want to do anything about, but a lot of them go to that point you were making about the way in which we've framed issues. And, you know, let, let's face it, what that's about is effective 
foreign policy and diplomacy that's been, as we've talked about many times before, missing in some of the ways in which we've been responding. I agree. It was interesting. And what I would add to that is, while it wasn't surprising, it was still bracing to see how see it all written down and how broad a lot of the demands were. And 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 you know, it was pointed out that they they assume a degree of control over sort of independent thinkers and actors and by the government. You know, for example. Aspie, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, a think tank here in Canberra, which does receive money from the government, but is still an independent think tank. Yeah, you know, there's a sense that well, the Australian government needs to clamp down on what they're doing, and that's an irritant in the relationship, which of course misunderstands what a what a, a liberal political system how that operates. Um, and you, you, you use the word demands. I, I wasn't close enough to looking at how it came out. Were they expressed as demands or as simply an articulation of the issues on which we disagree and that the Chinese hoped that Australia would do something, but not a, not as a, a demand. I wouldn't want to, I can't remember if a week is a long time in, in politics. I mean, the way in which I remember was that these were 14 sources of friction, yeah, yeah, no, which if that. there was a change, that would be conducive to a better political relationship in the way in which they tend to frame these things. But that in that list were things that, really do go against the, the the way in which we do our politics and the way in which we you know, have you know, the rule of law and and protections for individual you know free speech and and independent thought and that that was for me that was what was so interesting about it is that by by concretizing these on paper they were really saying to the whole world these are the things that are going to be irritants in the future in, in other bilateral relationships and throwing them as red lines might be too strong a word, but by, put, by setting them down as markers may have actually been counterproductive because it made so clear how, how far apart you know, China is from, from many Western countries. And I guess this gets to my last question, which is, let, let's talk about China here. I mean, what are they doing? It's tactical or strategic merit to this trolling behaviour or is there merit to listing their demands or what's your read? I mean, how should we understand what they're doing here or how should we update our beliefs about what they're trying to achieve from these past few weeks? <laughs> or can we? Yeah, well, well, there'd certainly be others around Canberra who can who would say, yes, we, you know, this is throwing off the cloak and China revealing itself in all its lust for power and influence. I think a lot of it has been counterproductive to Chinese interests. I think the wolf warrior diplomacy, you know, it's obviously reflects some popular sentiment in China, just as, you know, the, the nationalism here re reflects popular sentiment. But it but I, I think it I think the overall damage it's doing to China's not only image but position in the world is is very real. So I I'm always reluctant to assume that for any country at any time, there's a sort of central command centre, which is sort of manipulating all the levers of power around the system to achieve a certain outcome. I wouldn't say that here, but I do definitely think that there's an increasing tendency on Beijing's part to say, you know, damn it, this is what we think and we're going to say it. Mm. Mm. All I would add to that, Alan, is that uh, to me, what's interesting is not how we will react in Australia. I mean, I think 
the successive actions have, have been counterproductive to either persuading us or either or even galvanizing some kind of political coalition to change Australian policy. I, I, I don't think that's realistic to expect. It's only hardening our, you know, hardening our resolve, I think. But of course, it's not just Australia who are the audience here, and it, it's the region. It's developing countries. You know, I, um, the China watcher Bill Bishop, who uh, who has the excellent newsletter Cynicism, which I subscribe to, made the point today that you know, criticism of the US and, and by extension Australia and, and, and their wars in Afghanistan and Iraq across the Middle East does have a lot of currency, you know, in the developing world. And that this was yeah. an opportunity to delegitimize that particular use of power and remind you know, the world of what US power looks like and whether you're going back to Abu Ghraib and echoes of Abu Ghraib and some of the controversies of Iraq and that yeah. China is trying to build a peaceful, you know, community of shared future for mankind, you know, development-driven logic. Yes, it has its downsides, but let's remind ourselves of, of, of what we're facing with, with US power and, and, and leadership. And so that's where we need to be paying attention. I don't, I don't think that Australia is not a swing, swing state here. How are the rest of the region viewing this? How do they view the 14 points? Are they the kinds of things that they can live with, you know, if the benefit of China's you know, economic engagement and the avoidance of Chinese sticks comes with them versus, you know, these are probably unacceptable to Australia and to much of the West, but we're maybe not the most relevant audience to, to be watching here. And I would hope that our diplomacy is going to be angled towards thinking about those third parties and, and how they might react into the future. Anyway, Alan, anything else? Uh, shall we wrap things up? No, there'll be more next week. <laughs> <laughs> there will be. There will be. Okay, well, that's all for this emergency episode of Australia in the World. Thanks, as always, to Mitchell McIntosh for audio editing today and for Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Yes, I'm sure we'll be doing this again very soon. Talk to you then. Bye-bye. <laughs>